Hi there, it's Naomi Sneakus, and welcome to the firecracker department. Well, another week, another beautiful Canadian summer week. Canada is so beautiful in the summer, isn't it? Even if it's raining, it's gorgeous, that warm rain. Even if it's like thunderstormy, I love it. I love all, all the weather that Canada has to offer. I had an interesting story. I actually tweeted about this a little while ago. So I will follow it up with the actual story. So my family is here from England and my father's here in Kingston, Ontario. And so we're all gathering and celebrating his 80th birthday, which I'll speak about in a little bit, uh, his 80th birthday. So we uh, all met in Kingston. I took his car and um, I was doing errands and whatnot. And it's a standard, not used to driving a standard. I'm fine with driving a standard, but this was a little bit... Um, um, unusual for me. Anyway, I rolled back and I bumped, I kissed, I nudged, I just winked, barely touched the car behind me. Oh, gave me a fright. Put on the handbrake, put it on park, did the whole thing, put my hazards on, jumped out of the car and I looked at the guy and said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And his reaction was, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to say it. Yeah, you F-wad, you bumped my effing car. Well, I've never been called an F-wad before, and so it unnerved me, to say the least. It made me shake. I was shaking because he had so much aggression coming my way. So I said, listen, totally get it. I, I'm not used to driving a standard. Well, that's obvious, he says. Oh, my God. Even telling the story, it makes me unrattled. Uh, and uh, so I said, let's just pull into this parking lot. Uh, we'll exchange insurance. Yeah, I'm going to take your insurance, he says. I'm like, yep, we'll exchange the insurance. I'm super sorry. You've ruined my day, he says. Just aggression, just aggression, aggression. I said, okay, we pull in and we start to exchange um, papers. And I, he doesn't have any room on his phone to take pictures of the insurance. And I said, let's have a little look at your bumper to see what the damage is. And he starts pointing out things that are like this scratch and this thing. But it's not a lot. It's not anything really. Like I don't really see anything. Maybe, maybe a little bit, but anyway, he was angry and he said, you know, I've ruined his day and that he, um, and now he doesn't have time for lunch. He only has half an hour break. And I said, you know what, buddy, I've got like a bag of chips that I just bought from the grocery store. Let me give you a bag of chips. And he was like, I don't eat chips, but he softened a little bit. And Finally, when he saw that there wasn't really any damage on his bumper and that my car actually probably was worse for it because there were some paint scratches on my, on my father's car, so not my car, um, he went, oh, forget it. I'm just, I just want to go have lunch. And I said, okay, well, thank you so much. I'm so sorry. I'm an idiot for having this happen. And he was just softening and softening. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, I'm going to give you a hug. And so I gave him a hug, got in his car, and he drove away. And I was like, I get so shaky at confrontation. Anyway, the moral of the story is snacks and a hug diffuse a conversation. Snacks are always the start to diffusing any kind of confrontation to me. And then a hug sort of seals the deal. But um, yeah, it was a bit of a shock to me to be called an F-wad. Have you ever been called an F-wad? Hmm, not the best time. Not the best time.
Anyway, I was saying it was my father's 80th birthday, and so we had a couple of surprises for him. And uh, I'll tell you this about my father. He is the person that has given me the work ethics that I have, the drive that I have. He works so hard, and uh, he loves, he's a chemist, and he loves his chemistry so much. And uh, I'm inspired. I'm inspired by that aspect of him because, you know, I remember him saying when I was little that all he wanted to do was to make a contribution in the world. And um, that's really stuck with me. And he also, you know, and in, in, I'm paraphrasing these, but he said something about doing what you love to do. And he's always supported me as soon as he knew I loved doing, you know, being in the in the uh, field of acting in the show business world. He's been nothing but supportive. And then watching the relationship between my mother and father is nothing short of inspiring. Because as my mom got um, dementia and it got worse, you know, he started um, stepping up. You know, it was hard for him at first because he, I think he really mourned the loss of the wife he used to know. And then um, gradually he started stepping up and started being more present. And when she could still walk, he used to hold her and dance and we, we took her on vacation and got her into the pool, which was great because they could swim around together. And that was like, uh, you can imagine, it was beautiful. And even now, she doesn't communicate with anything but her eyes. And he goes every day and he feeds her lunch and uh, puts moisturizing cream on her face. And he calls that a facial. He's never had a real facial, obviously. But he does all those things and makes sure that he can get a smile out of her. And um, his devotion is is really inspiring. That we could all be so lucky as to have a partner in our life that uh, looks out for us like that. Now, on to Annie Bradley. Annie Bradley is our guest today. And um, this is the first time I interviewed somebody that I didn't know before, which was really interesting. So I'd done a bunch of research, but... Uh, I think she's fantastic. She's got a, sh- a movie coming out with Joanne Boland called Blowback that I, I just, it looks so intriguing. And you know it's a good trailer when you just go, oh, give me more of that. So everything she does, she does with heart and uh, um, passion. And uh, I just love watching what she creates. Yeah, I think she's a real excellent woman and I really enjoyed talking with her. We talked for so long. This is the other thing that happened. We were talking... And I try to talk for about an hour and then start to wrap it up because it feels like that's good for everybody. A nice hour-long chat you can listen to in the car or something. Couldn't stop talking with Annie. We just had to keep going. So this one's a little bit longer, but I I think all the stories are so engaging and inspiring. So I think you'll really enjoy it. So here she is, Annie Bradley. Where are you coming from today? Uh, Parkdale. Oh, is that where you're at? The lovely Parkdale. Is that um, your home? Is that your office? Do you That's have... where I live yeah. and work. And, you know, I love Parkdale. It's like the last sort of bastion of when I moved. It reminds me of when I moved to Toronto, you know, oh, five years ago. No, right. you know, 25 <laughs> years ago when I moved to Toronto and, and that sort of that perfect combination of, you know, uh, hip, you know, like mm. sort of like very cool, but at that same time, a real cross section of socioeconomic people yeah. and diversity and a certain amount of grit, which, you know, I mean, now Parkdale just feels like Hamilton. Right. But it's quickly gentrifying, so. But it is good to feel like you're not in a pristine place. 
Don't you yeah. think as an artist, like it doesn't work for me to work in a place that's too lovely? It's the Venice of Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. I just got back from two months in Venice. So I'd say it's a, and I could move there in a heartbeat. Yeah. I'd say it's definitely the Venice of Toronto. So you, what were you doing in LA? Um, I was doing a project that I actually can't talk about. Oh, but, okay. Um, Wait, can you talk about it if we don't release this? For a while? No, not no. for it. has to be for a long time. Yeah, okay. I, I'm not exactly sure when it okay. I'll be able to talk right. about it, but it was a feature film, so uh, feature doc. So we'll see what happens with it, but um, yeah. It's yeah. a great project, and and uh, met some really great people on it, some new people, new creative collaborators that I didn't know. So and you split your time with L.A. a lot? Uh, I haven't as of yet. I've been spending a lot more time down there. A lot of it initially was just to go away to write, to sort of like isolate myself to write. But I've also got some really good friends down there. Mm -hmm. And as you well know, once you have friends that are really grounded, that aren't, that you're not just going there to sort of have meetings and sort of do all that sort of stuff, then LA becomes this really quite an awesome place to live. It's true. Yeah. And you know, I'm telling you, in a world... Our world, which is based in rejection, a little sunshine every day really helps. Oh my god! <laughs> Especially, we were there February, March. Oh yeah, and I was in my bare feet, and I was like, "Oh, what's that lacking of depression that I have?" Yeah, it's fantastic, and also like the friends there. Like you know, it's, it it can be a lonely city. Mm-hmm. Have you spent like a long time there? Did you ever live live there? Um, or do you visit? I do visits in like up to about three months right. and and then usually I have to come back because of something work or something else or you know whatever but I'm think I'm trying this year to to go for longer yeah to potentially I, I have been putting a lot of things into place as you, will. you yeah. know it takes it takes time and money and yeah um, but I have some really wonderful friends there who have some little extra places to stay in. Love those guest houses. Those guest right? houses. Yeah. Everybody has like a weird little guest house in the back. Yeah. Yeah. So I do you write best that way by secluding yourself? Because you're one of those people looking at your your resume. You can you do a lot of little things like you do directing, but you also started as a PA and AD. So as a writer, do you need to seclude yourself? Um. I write best when I don't have any distractions. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I like to go away and to be somewhere different mm-hmm. when I'm writing. Um, primarily because it's distractions that you don't have. And then you can just sort of create the distraction you want. So you're not beholden to anybody for any kind of like social structure. Yeah. Um, I mean, listen, I could sit in my apartment in Parkdale for like six months and not see a person. But right. I mean, really, I could. <laughs> now that I don't have a dog anymore, right. it's like, oh my God, I'm like the crazy lady oh, in no. the apartment. Um, but I, I re- I'm one of those weird social, uh, I just discovered it's a new thing. I'm uh, a social ex- introvert. Yeah. I think I might be too. What yeah. is that to you? <laughs> so to me, that means that when I'm in a social environment, I enjoy it very much, mm-hmm. and I like it, mm-hmm. and I and I need it. Like for example, I, I call it like, oh right, the girl who talks to strangers. So I will like talk start talking to anybody anywhere, right? Like on a bus, like in a lineup, like whatever. Randomly. I don't care. Yeah. Um. So I'm very social that way, and you know, not that I really care for parties much anymore because you know, really, who's talking? 
anything about anything. Right. But uh, right. But I do love, you know, getting together with groups of people whose opinion, complete strangers and stuff, when there's wine and there's food. I'm very European in that yeah. way. I lived in Europe when I was younger. So I, yeah. I really like that social interactive food, booze compendium, you know, yes. where everybody gets a little bit, takes the edge off and people are enjoying themselves and conversation sort of flows. And I really like that. But then I can go for real long periods of time without talking to anybody. Right. I'm pretty good at entertaining myself. <laughs> right. Because you live alone. You had a dog, but you don't have a yeah, dog anymore. Yeah, I live alone. Never been married. I'm a spinster. Yeah. Well. Woo! Oh, <laughs> I love it. Um, I don't know if spinsters, like, is that a title that still exists in 2017? Yes. Because, like, to me, you're just an artist. Like, it doesn't yeah, have exactly. to label it as a spinster. No, no, but I kind of love it because it's such a kind of a quirky old t- right. school thing. Right. And, um, and I also find that as a female creative in this business you know the first of course we get asked questions that nobody else ever gets asked like oh are you married you know like right. what guy would ever get asked right. that question right uh are you married oh really oh so oh so you're divorced and you and then you go no no and then i just let it hang yeah right? <laughs> And then they, I know what they want to ask me, which is like, oh, so you're gay. That's the next thing they want right. to ask me. And then I, I just sit there and wait and let them get uncomfortable. Right. And then I go, no. I just look at them and say, no. And then and then I just like let it hang. And yeah. then I go, come on, I'm a spinster. Yeah. It's awesome. But do you love your life alone? Um, like, are you one of those people? Like, I remember reading an article about um, Jane Lynch, who actually lives with mm-hmm. her ex, but not as a relationship. And she's like, I like this life. I don't actually want to be in a relationship. I have my good friends. I have my dogs and I'm happy. Like, are you one of those people? Like if you met the right person? I think, I think, you know what? Uh, I think it's very interesting because as you get to be of a certain age, you know, over 21. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a certain age. That's that was over 21, age, right? Yeah, sure. over 21. I always say it's like, you know, before the pre-life crisis. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so when you get to be a certain age, you start to value you know, different things in a different way. Mm. Because I think people get married because they want to have kids. You know what I mean? I think a lot of people get married, first of all, because they want to believe the mythology. of You know, which of course, I'm writing a screenplay about it right now called Just One Day. I mean, why the fuck do we just get one perfect day? I mean, of course, that's like setting up every woman in the world to fail for the rest of their life. Right? Like, it's like, only one perfect day? Yeah. You're Screw that. Special. You're the most important you know? person on that special day. But for the rest of the year, not so important. Right? <laughs> Everything's like downhill from there, right? It's yeah. like, oh, great. Like everything else yeah. is going to be a big disappointment. Yeah. Hilarious. So, um, but I think I think that, uh, you know, beyond the mythology of, I like to call it the bridal machine, like the war machine, um, which is just like a billion, billion dollar industry. Yeah. Beyond that mythology, I think that most people get together because they want to have kids and they want to build a family or they're or they're afraid of being alone. Right. And I think for a lot of women, uh, we also, I, I see it really interestingly in the young women these days. It's a really weird. Yeah. What, like the pull to get married and start? Yeah. Like uh, it's, it's, it feels like there's this, they're all dressing like Amish women, uh, really? housewives. <laughs> You know what I mean? And then, you know, if I see another big Peter Pan collar, I'm going to punch it <laughs> off of somebody's neck. <laughs> I haven't noticed that. Oh, yeah. Those floral dresses yeah. that come up to here and they're oh, yeah. sort of like yeah. the hippie dresses and sure. stuff and sensible shoes. And I'm like, what the hell? 
Birkenstocks are back. Shoes, though. No, no, that's true. I love I am sensible so shoes. So sad of watching girls in high heels. Oh, I'm yeah. Like, you're not comfortable. Don't pretend you are. No. I mean, it seems to be these two extremes. Right. It doesn't seem to be this sort of middle ground for women. Um, so it's almost, you know, as Jill Soloway said, you know, you're either the, you know, the wife or the whore. Right. Right. There's like those two sort of paradigms which we get lumped into. Um, I, I think it's really fascinating to see women who I think now because of course 45 I think it's now we're past the tipping point it's mostly women going to university now oh is that right yeah oh interesting 45 yeah. percent is that like it's, I think it's yeah. way over that I think it might be over 50 percent now oh, like women are go and into the bigger professions like yeah. lawyers doctors etc yeah so either men have just gone like hey they figured out that they can just stay at home if they keep their looks a little bit <laughs> And their fertility. Right. And play video games for the rest of their lives. And their wives will go out and make money. Uh, and they can be a house husband right. and go to the park with the stroller and the dog. Um, Dad bods or, become really stylish. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, or women have, you know, because women don't do less work because they've got a dad. Mom. Right. Right. You know, yeah. they're still doing all the work. Right. And having a career. But so I think it's weird. I think it's Were like, you ever married? Uh, no. Never. Yeah, I, I... You? Yeah. Twice. Really? <laughs> Were you But young? I never had the... Um, I guess so. I, I mean, but I never had the, I want to get married for kids. Yeah. I think I wanted to get married because I liked the partnership. Right. Yes. Which would be a completely logical reason to get married. Yeah. It made me feel like I was part of a team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Us against the world. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. there's a safety in that. There's a real... There's a real grounded, especially in a business that is so unstable. Unstable, yeah, totally. That I needed yeah. to know there was one, and then and then I think that was really it. Really rocked my world when that wasn't the stability I thought it was the first round. Wow. Do you know like yeah. you sort of believe I'm, in certain things? And, yeah, it's a mythology that yeah. we're. It, I think it's ingrained in all of us. But you never had that need, like the marriage. I don't know, like to to be part of something like that for any sake of whether family or team. Building. I was engaged, <laughs> I was engaged, it, it, which is really funny because I come from a really religious family, yeah. so uh, three generations of ministers, and wow. um, my parents have been together for 65 years. Holy moly. Yeah. What nationality were your parents? Uh, well, I'm adopted, Okay. so um, my parents, my, my real, I call them my real parents because they're the people that, you know, brought me up, yeah. are... English and my mom is half German, Russian German, and half French. That's her background. But she was a farm girl from Muskoka, right? And my dad was a minister's son from Muskoka. And my dad and his brother were also adopted. So I come from two generations. Oh wow! Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And then, have you ever met your um, birth parents? I know who my birth mother is. We don't know as of yet. I'm on that journey right now. I don't know as of yet whether or not she is alive still. Wow. She might be. I just got my... I always knew I was adopted ever since I was a little kid. Um, and so did my brother, who's no longer with us, but he was also adopted. And um, uh, Were you adopted from the same... No. Oh, interesting. No. So you yeah. guys were put into your own team. Yeah. 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 And, and so, uh, so you're just now finding out about... Where your mom is, or your well, birth mom. we think oh, they opened up the birth records a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, the, the um, I was you know a typical children's aid baby, right? Um, although apparently I just found out in the last two years that my mom got the wrong baby. 
Uh, and then didn't get me for six weeks. Had the wrong baby for six weeks. And what? Me. Holy cow. No <laughs> Where wonder was I during that six weeks? No wonder you're a writer. These yeah. stories are fantastic. Yeah. So, 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 yeah, so that was interesting. I just found that out. And, of course, your mother goes, well, I always told you that. And I go, no, 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 no. I think I would have remembered that. I think I would have remembered that story. Yeah. Uh, yeah, swapped me up in the back of a car outside the doctor's oh office. Oh, my God. Oh, you know, it was the children's aid days, the, the heyday of children's aid, as I like to call it. Wow. You went to, you went to your own house and picked up your own kid. Oh, like, my God. They, went, they got sent to the wrong house and yeah. picked up the wrong kid. Holy cow. So... So do you think that has any um, effect on the fact that you, you didn't seek a husband in L, like in that, in a family in that sense, in the traditional sense? Um, you know, I, I think about this a lot because um, I'm like the number one go-to person for everybody's kids. Right. Yeah. Like they're like, get Annie. Right. Like, yeah. you know, do you have a problem, child? Get Annie, right? Uh, do you, you know, do you need a babysitter? Get Annie. Like, right. You know, if I go to an adult party and there's kids there, I'll usually end up with all the kids. No kidding. In the corner. Yeah, but and, you never wanted your own. And I, no, never mm. wanted kids. And they, you know, I love kids. I also love to give them back. You know, um, and I think, I think that was really understanding early on. And I love directing kids. I love working with do child you? actors. Yeah, I really do. You seem like you work with a little bit of everything. Like, I'd, I wouldn't be able to pigeonhole your style of directing. No. Like, comedy, drama. Yeah. Children. Like, Pudge is so beautiful, and that little girl is so magical. Oh, yeah, she's and, a magic. Yeah. She's magic. Yeah. That she's last, magic. What was the last song that you used in that short film? That's me singing. No, I it's not. That. Yeah. It, it, it was everything. Yeah. That it needed to be. It was like that smile that she had. It was yeah. everything. Yeah, was so... she, she was a real magical child. Yeah. Very magical child. Um, I think, you know, it's so funny. I, I think about that a lot and I go, I think I would get, I think I would get married, you know, um, if I found the right person. But, you know, maybe this goes to the heart of being an artist. You would know this. I'm really good at compromise. <laughs> right. I'm right. not really interested in it. If I, if I, I've, and that's not to say that I haven't had raging love affairs that have lasted many, many years and had wonderful men in my life and, um, you know, but I, I, somebody once told me once, they said, you know what, you're not really girlfriend material. And I said, okay, first of all, I'll take that as a compliment. But secondly, <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? Right. right? Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Like, you can't just, that's like walking up to somebody and say, you look fat in those pants, and then walking away. Like, it seems, you know, like, a, like, it seems like, a, like a cheat of how to yeah, get out of something. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't somebody I was involved with. It was oh. somebody who was a creative collaborator with me who really loved me and who really respected me. Right. And I said, because I was like, you know, I think I'm pretty fabulous. Yeah. You know, I'm fun to yeah. be around. Yeah. Like, I'm the girl that if you come up and you go, well, I was thinking of having a first date and going to, like, uh, you know, motocross. And I'd be like, awesome. Yeah. Like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm a axe throwing, like, bow slinging, like, You're whatever up I'm up for. Yeah. Right? Oh, I've never done that. Let's do that. So I always thought, well, I'm a fabulous catch. Like, I'm, you know, 
got on my teeth. <laughs> I'm on my fingers. <laughs> you know, that's what defines a fabulous cat. You know, like I, I'm, I got a sense of humor about yeah. most things. Um, I'm, you know, I like to do all kinds of stuff. I'm curious. Yeah. Like all those things that I think are attractive in a man. Um, especially the all the teeth part. But <laughs> I do love a man who has all his teeth. Oh, all his own teeth, oh, too. Oh, that's, None that's of those taking him out at night. Extreme. Um, unless they're a hockey player. Well, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I was like, why? And he said, because you don't really seem to need men for anything. Huh. And I thought. Wow. Like, that was the first time anybody kind of quantified it. Right. Yeah. And I thought about that, and I thought about... Of course, I thought about it in all the characters that I've seen in movies and read in books, etc. And you think about somebody like, you know, if I was going to say my heroes, right? So a lot of my heroes that are women are not filmmakers, but a lot of them would be more along the lines of, like, Dorothy Parker. Right. You know, one of my all-time heroes. Yeah. Mae West, you know? These women that really broke molds and did it their own way. Yeah. You know, and um, uh, those women ran their own lives like they were excellent at what they did. And in a world and at a time where they shouldn't even have had opportunities of any kind. Um, And I go, they were solo women. They didn't marry. Nope. They didn't, you know, they didn't have children. They didn't, or if they did, they ignored them. Right. Most handily. Um, You know, they were terrible mothers. They were women that needed men. Like, you didn't look at them and go, oh, they're they're struggling because they aren't married. Yeah. Like, they were spinsters, a lot of them. Yeah. You know what I mean? A lot of these writers and painters and, and, you know, I think they struggled with the paradigm of marriage. Yeah. Yeah. I was just sort of re- reading online today. There's that total reveal of this new Sylvia Plath letters that have just all oh, come no. out. Yeah. Which explain why she killed herself. Like, you know what I mean? Systematically, the literati community has denied that Ted Hughes was an insanely abusive husband. Right. The British poet that she was married to. Right. And today it comes out that all these letters were like he was beating the crap out of her like right. over and over again. She was running away to Paris not to have affairs but to like try to get away from him. Right. And to write and to do stuff. And so you like you go there's always a reason, you know. Sure. I, I think it's really fascinating. Um you know, and I think I, I don't know, I, I don't know but I think I think if I met the right person I would marry. Yeah. I mean now, especially if they had money. <laughs> and it doesn't seem like you have yeah. chosen a path that you're like, this is what it's going to be, because you're an artist, so anything can happen. And as you said, you're up for anything. Like, if you did meet somebody and suddenly you wanted to get married and have kids, then you would probably do it. Yeah, I don't think I would have kids. No, you're... No, I did turn down one great love in my life who wanted to have kids, and I, I said no, and that was the end of it. Oh, and you know there are days when I regret that, but then most days now. No, no. Did you re- like you just chose you don't want to have children and? Yeah, you know. I just never wanted to, and I never had that. Um, I don't have kids either. I never had that desire. Now I will tell you, and in all intents and purposes, I'm completely open about all of this because I believe it's our choice. Um, I did get pregnant once, and I did have an abortion. Right. And so let this be a PSA for just one moment. <laughs> Okay. Contrary. Firecracker PSA. Sure. (laughs) 
Uh, contrary to all the things that everybody will tell you from the alt-right or the right wing or any religious organization or anybody who has conservative values, it is the hardest decision you will ever make for a very specific reason, science. Yeah. Your body is genetically engineered and crafted by the hand of the female almighty to be set up to do this. Yeah. So no matter how crazy broke you are, like doing meth, like with a six kids already, whatever it is, rich, like whatever it is, your body will convince you through a outpouring of oxytocin released into the bloodstream that this is the best idea you've ever had right. to have a child. It flows through your body like crack. Mm-hmm. So then you have your friends who come in and go, uh, you're a bartender. Right. How old <laughs> and you? I was, um, how old was I? 27, 28. Okay. So a 28 year old bartender, you know, like you, like you're doing you, PA work. I wasn't even doing PA work at that time. I was, I was working in a bar and writing and I was, I like, I wasn't even in the film business then. I was, I had left the radio industry cause that's where right. I started off. I right. started off at CFNY. I worked in in the radio industry in the early 80s. And then I had gone into the music industry. As a stylist? As a stylist, but yeah. I did all kinds of stuff, you know, and right. and toured all over the world with bands and stuff like that. Right. And then I was getting out of that and into film because that's where I always wanted to be. But it was Did like you know that you always wanted room. to do that? Like I when always you were... wanted to be a director. Right. Oh, yeah? Director always. specifically. All right. I always wanted to be a director. From the very first time I saw a movie, I asked my mother what a director did. What was the movie that you saw? Uh, Old Yeller. No kidding. Yeah. yeah. My two loves, film and dogs. Right? Um, yeah. So, okay, wait. So a 28-year-old yeah. uh, working in a bar and your friends are like, wake like, up. Like, what are you... Like, what? Yeah. And it was the men in my life, actually, that were the most logical. Right. And, of course, you know, it took about 24 hours and I was like, oh, yes, absolutely. You're, you're so totally right. And besides, they're like, besides, like, you don't want kids. And I'm like... Exactly. Right. But you, and know, you knew at 28. Oh, yeah. Think. I knew at 12. Oh, wow. Yeah. Never wanted kids. Yeah. It's like some of my friends know at 12, they're definitely having four children. Exactly. Yeah. Like, my, there were my girlfriends that were. And you know, weirdly, most of the adult women in my life either had one child early on and haven't had any other kids mm-hmm. or haven't had kids. Yeah. Interesting. Um, it's interesting. You, you know, or. Or if they've had kids, they're extraordinarily good at it. You know, Joanne Boland. Right. Oh, yeah. You know what she's, I mean? She's delightful. Those, that family is fantastic. Yeah. They're just giggling all the time. I know. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I love, you know, I love being I love around them. them yeah. Because she's, she's just, like, laughing and giggling, and they're yeah. just, like, these little... Like they got it figured out. And it's children. not that it's easy. No. It's, it's, and I have a, my, my great friends that I stay with in, in uh, L.A., they have two kids, Max and Tallulah who I just, you know, I just adore those kids. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, Max is two. He's like a Viking. Right. Yeah. And he's like, and runs at me and just body slams me, right? (laughs) And and Tallulah's, you know, like, will we be dining alone tonight or will Annie be joining us? Oh, my Every day when her mom picks her up from school. Like, just really intelligent, funny, fun-loving kids with great parents. And you never had regrets about not having kids? No. Except for who's going to take care of me when I'm old. That's the... Right. That's but you seem like you have a pretty good posse of friends. 
Oh, yeah, but they'll, like, abandon you as soon as you get Alzheimer's. Like, I mean, come on. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so could kids. Yeah. There's no guarantee, guarantee right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, my parents are lucky I'm still hanging out. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so yeah. going back then, so you were doing music and always kind of going, I'm, I'm a stylist. I'm traveling probably with, like, extraordinary bands. Were you, yeah. were you traveling with, like, superhero bands? Um, you know, probably in the eighties, some of them were, yeah. yeah. You know, like Brian Adams and, and uh I've heard of him. And Kinks. Okay. And the Kinks and um <laughs> Honey and Sweet. Yeah. And, you know, like this kind but of But the whole time yeah. going, This isn't what I'm meant to be doing. No. And then But it's a journey, right? Sh- sure. Like when did you start going, I gotta focus and get into what I wanna do? Um, I was working in a bar and uh have it all starts in a bar it all starts in a bar <laughs> you know like two girls walk into a bar right <laughs> and uh and, you know, and a lifetime ensues um i think every great story starts with a drink because who wants a story that starts with lettuce nothing funny is <laughs> lettuce or whatever that great quote is i can't remember what it is anyway who's that um, i don't know i love I think it. it was on a napkin or something because what great what story great starts start with lettuce. lettuce oh my gosh that's fantastic um, i think it was there, and there was a lot of people from the film industry who were uh, drinking in the bar. Right. In Toronto? Yeah, in Toronto. And I had had quite a reputation as a bartender. I had a large crowd of people that followed me around because my motto was, it's my world and you're lucky to be drinking in it. Right. What do you mean follow you around? Like if you changed yeah. working in bars? Hundreds of people would follow And they would me. just go to the... Yeah, i go, okay guys, I'm going to this bar now and they'd just all pick up and move and right. take their business. Hilarious. Um, and I was a connector. Yeah. I loved meeting people. I loved talking to people. Uh, you know, if you want to be a writer, you need to be a bartender because it's the best place to overhear conversations that you shouldn't be hearing. Right. Yeah. Um, speech patterns, rhythms... Arguments, the most deadly argument I always say I ever heard was the quietest argument. Right. You know, that's when you knew. It's like a dog. When they're not barking, you're in big trouble. Yeah. They really, they're going to kill each other. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They stop barking. So, or, um, or they're eating a yeah. sock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, so um, I really loved it. And I loved the sort of the, the, the family environment of... Yeah that industry and it was the 80s i mean man we were making so much money in the film and, industry or in oh the no, bartender in the bartending oh, yeah. industry i mean it was the 80s everybody was like like i don't know they were printing money in the back of like every place on bay street right um and i worked at really cool places yeah. you know i was the first rooftop bartender at the bamboo club which was still the best club you know, the city ever had. Yeah. Um, I worked at the Edge Nightclub, which, you know, every major rock act, like music act in the free world that means anything played at. Yeah. Um, you know, so it wasn't like you were lacking. You worked at the Horseshoe? When it's, yeah. I worked it. at the Horseshoe. When, uh, the first week I worked at the Horseshoe, I was there for the, you know, everything. But the first week I was there, um, oh God, what were they called back then? Codco. Right. Played. Oh, right. Yeah. They were doing shows there. Yeah. Yeah. And it was amazing. I was like, who are these people? These people are so incredible. Yeah. So, you know, you got to, it was like this incredible time for Toronto, too. Yeah. Like Queen Street was on fire. It, there was about 2,000 cool people. Right. It was before the bridge and tunnel crowd moved in. <laughs> right. Or condo dwellers, as sure. we like to call them here. But you weren't lacking in life. Like, you were no. fulfilled. So you weren't going, 
oh, I need more. Yeah. And then was there like a tipping point when you went, oh, this isn't enough any longer? Um, I think I had started to style music videos and I hated it because I didn't have control. And, you know, it didn't matter how good you were at what you were doing. You were always dressing women as whores or, you know, whatever. Right. Like you, you realized that you had to be in control of the story if you wanted to control the narrative. Right. And, but I was a little, I guess I was just a little like, I don't know what to, how to do it. Um, because like I was, how to do the, get into directing, how, what steps yeah, to take? Because I was, I was not the person who was going to go back to school. Right. You know, but you don't come across as somebody that's overly shy, like to like be bold and go, Oh, this is what I want to do. Yeah. But when I was getting into the business home, there were no female directors. Right. Like, I mean, female directing wasn't even like now it's like, well, and I will say this as another PSA announcement. Yeah. Talk is cheap. I am waiting to see the behave when the behavior changes. Right. Um, I mean, it's different, but it's still not yeah. where we want it to be. It's of course. nowhere near it should yeah. be. When we stop calling like female directors, female directors, that'll be it. Yeah. Um, so. So you had nobody to. Uh, I really men- had nobody mentor to, you. I had nobody to mentor me. I, you know, I was always a child that was very creative. You know what I mean? Like I wrote my first opera when I was fourteen. No way. A reworking what of the, Cinderella. Yeah. Did a whole musical, <laughs> like read, like did it. it on a big stage, like you know, sold out everything. Wow. Wrote all the music, wrote all the lyrics, etc. Performed in it. Performed in it. Yeah, I was an actress when I was younger, and um, and I was a musician because my father was the music teacher for the district of Muskoka, and you know, oh my goodness, she can walk, she can sit in a piano bench. You know, play a ton of instruments, and I was always a singer in choirs and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. music was always my expressive tool. Right. Music and interpretive dance. Um, and Oh, yeah. And I was a big jock. I was like... Just a little bit of everything. Yeah. You were just like, doing... Yeah. yeah. I enjoyed, like, sports immensely. I mean, I grew up in Lake Muskoka, so, you know... They threw me off the end of the dock when I was like two years old. Yeah, yeah, you great. Go to the bottom of the lake and you come up swimming, right? Right. That's yeah. what it is. And then I lived in a speedo and a pair of tobaccos and a t-shirt for the next ten years of my life. So, I water skied. I, you know, did everything that I sailed, did all that kind of yeah. stuff. So. And you had parents that were constantly, like, you can do that. You can do that. I don't even think. No, I didn't have encouragement parents. No. Oh no no. I was from the generation of like, oh my god, get lost. Go like, do something. Go do something. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I and my dog and my imaginary friends, because we lived on Lake Muskoka, but behind us was like 175 acres of woods. Right. The farm. So I would just, or 145 acres, I don't know what it is. Anyway, a million acres yeah. to a, yeah. a child. <laughs> right. Myself and my brother. Like, I was Huck Finn. Right. Like, that was, you know, I was like, with my stick and off yeah. with my go dog. Go busy yourself. And, and we, you made yeah, we went off into the woods and... You know, we walked a mile to the school bus right. every morning, right. like in back. You know, so it was a very different, it was a solitary existence because there weren't a lot of kids. They were only there in the summer around us. In the winter, right. there was nobody there. It was right. just my brother and I. So you made up a lot of stories. You had a lot of characters you lived in and existed yeah. in. Did you really have imaginary friends? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Like a gaggle of them? Oh, yeah. That's great. Yeah. I still have them. Yeah? Do they oh, yeah, well, they're all grown up and bitter, but you know what I mean? <laughs> That's why you don't so cynical. spending time by yourself because it's packed. It's a packed house. Yeah. 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 Well, everybody should talk to yourself. I mean, that's the thing that I always say. Like, if, if somebody, if I meet somebody and they don't enjoy talking to themselves, 
I don't know what if to say. If you can't talk to yourself. Who can you talk to? Right? <laughs> That's the way I look at it. So you were, yeah. you were sort of being, like, discovering your own world as a kid. Yeah. And, and I, then eventually I, into, like, the world of music and things like that. But that wasn't through encouragement from your family. That was just, like, I gonna, this is what I want to do now? Yeah, I think I just was interested in not taking a straight route. I probably should have. God knows I probably would have been way more successful than I am. But I I enjoyed all of that stuff. And all of those things are, it's so, it's it's very funny. I mean, but when I go and I'll, you know, casually, you know, like, oh, yeah, then there's the time that, you know, you two stayed at our house because the record label didn't think they were going to go anywhere. And we said, oh, we, we'll put them up. They can stay with us. And I was showing some people in L.A. these pictures of Bono at 19 sitting in my living room. Great. Yeah. And they're like, is there really anything? And, you know, and I also designed a line of clothing called Gaga, which was sold all across North America with my best friend from high school. And now we've just designed a whole new line of clothing that we're going to do last week. Wow. So I, I'm a creative person, right? Like, and I like right. to do things that are creative. And is that from like boredom or is that from like, I don't want to take the straight path. I want to like, see what that is. See what that is. Curiosity. Well, I have this idea. Um, if you only live in one world, you don't have anything to bring to it. Right. So it's like, no offense, but thinking that 20 year olds, like if I see another goddamn mumblecore movie or a romantic comedy about 20 somethings who are so narcissistic, I'm going to throat punch. Like <laughs> who? Who? Netflix I need names. or something. Like, you know what I mean? But I'm like, oh my God, who cares? Yeah. Right? Like, you know, I grew up yeah. with Cassavetes and a woman under the influence and Scorsese and all these guys. And yes, some of those guys were 20, 25 years old. But, you know, like the, the movies were about something. Right. You know, there was a weight to it. And even the comedies were really smart. Yeah. You know, um, you know, Hal Ashby, I was just reading his biography when I was down in L.A. And he's one of my, you know, favorite directors and 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 so messed up in his personal life, like extraordinarily just married everybody he did. Right. right. I mean, it was hilarious. Um, and was so obsessed with what he did that he, to the extent that he didn't have a personal life or anything else. And most mm. people would say to you that that's probably me too. I'm always working. I, I am. Yeah. But I am also the number one slouch. Like, really? Oh, yeah. So if you go, uh, I give myself a day every week. That I just don't Nothing. do anything. And what's a lazy day for you? Uh, three or four K mile walk on the water. Right. Um, Not so lazy, but go on. A couple of bloody seizures. Okay. And some breakfast somewhere. Probably easy. Because um, they make the best huevos de Versiados. It's the only thing I miss in LA. That, that I have not been able to find that huevos de Versiados. Anything that can compare to that. Um, uh... It's your recharge time. Yeah, it's a recharge mm-hmm. time. And there's a there's a book that I'm dying to read. I just heard the CBC had this amazing thing on it called Rest and Repair. And this guy, this big scientist from, I don't know, you know, one of those Wharton, like Harvard okay. something, one of those <laughs> fancy pants places, yeah. um, wrote about the fact that we, because we're so digitally connected now, like I don't, I don't ever look at my phone. Right. I don't care. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't care. I don't want, like if my friends... Are what's that word fubbing or flubbing? You know where they they're using their phone while you're having a conversation with oh, them. It's called fubbing, or fubbing? there's a term for it now. Yeah, I just think it's rude. 
That's what I said. Is it called? Yeah, we've had it. Yeah, we've had it. We've had a term for that for a long time. It's called rude. But the thing is, it's expect. It's accepted now, right? Like not for me, man. Not for you, but it's if somebody, if you and I are talking, and you go, "Sorry," and you just start texting, I'll go. I get it. Like it's so common now. But it's it's only acceptable because we do accept it, right? And what it's what everybody doesn't realize. I I was lucky enough to um, teach it a class at Humber this past, I don't know, it was a year and a half ago or now, I guess maybe, um, just for a short semester. And I was here and I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. And I'm, I'm an excellent teacher. And uh, both my parents were teachers. And um, I was like, first day, I was like, okay, phone's in the basket. And they're like, what? what? And I'm like, phone's in the basket. You yeah. know, like, or like, I don't want to see your phones out well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I hate it because, and at the end of the year, this is what was so interesting to me, was here are all these kids and their level of social anxiety yeah. was through the roof. Yeah, it's really, it's really mounted, doesn't it? It's horrifying. They're like... But they must have felt so free putting their phones down. No. No, they didn't no, like it. It made them anxious as oh. anything. And they got it after a while, but I'm like... What is the point? Like, what is the point? Like, what are you looking at? Yeah. What What could you possibly be looking at? It's the thing that they don't know about, right? It's no, a little bit of news, or it's a little it's, it's a little vi- image, or it's something that they didn't know about before. It's I'm like, like read a book. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I read two books a week. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I was a the girl underneath the covers with the light yeah. on, with the flashlight yeah. reading. Yeah. Um, and I have never. I am shocked and flabbergasted by the lack of reading yeah. of people in the film business people you're in the business of scripting stories yeah. you cannot script stories if you do not read yeah you're talking to me cuz i i do not read very much i know i'm i don't like myself for it <laughs> why do you think you don't read um i think uh, I find it hard to quiet my mind enough, ah. and B, I feel like I read so much all day through social media or through emails or through articles my father sends me that I'm like I can't take any more in. So it doesn't. Uh, but then when I do read a book, I love it. Like if I go away on a holiday, I take a book and I'm through it in like no time at all. Yeah. But you I gotta I, trick yourself into reading. Yeah. Because you know what reading will do? It will rest your mind. Yeah. It will, it brings me, yeah, like it just, it is like reach, it is like taking ideas and putting it back into your brain. Well, it's recharging, right? And that's what you said before, like if you spin a bunch of plates, they'll recharge. And if you were just directing as opposed to working on a line, working on an opera, working on all these different things, you're directing, not necessarily with suffer, but you need that kind of fuel, right? Well, just just even like to I'm like a director is an observer of human behavior, mm-hmm. right? And to me, films. I mean, the background that I have as a musician gives me rhythm and cadence. Mm-hmm. So I've always had rhythm and cadence in my films, and so that's always been something that I. And to me, every movie is a song. Yeah, it feels almost like your movies are verbal um, music videos. Yeah. Like the way they're shot, they're like, it's very, it has a beautiful flow to it. And 
you know, even the, the editing doesn't feel, there's never a harsh edit to me. Well, I think, I think, and you'd be surprised that there are, but they, like... I don't if, see them. Yeah, you don't yeah. see them, which is a testament to the excellent editors I work with. Excellent editors, get one! <laughs> and then blow smoke up their ass for the rest of your career. <laughs> work harder. Um, uh, but I think it's, that's, once again, that's discovering your voice. I think a lot of what has to do with being an artist and being a director for me, and the people that I really feel have a distinct voice... Like, for example, Hal Ashby, didn't matter what he did, he had a really distinct voice. And that's why I love his work. His voice was very compassionate and self-deprecating, mm-hmm. and um, but very political. Mm-hmm. He was very political. I'm very political. Um, uh, and yet I have a huge heart. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I, I but want... that comes out too. You can't yeah. help it. Yeah. So where, when did you realize you had a voice? Um... You know what? I have to say this. I realized that I had a visual voice when I was at um, this amazing program called Women in the Director's Chair. Love that program. Did I you, you went. No, I yeah, it's with Carol. Carol Whiteman. Let's get Naomi into no, the Women in the Directors. I wrote uh, like maybe three years in a row, like pages of like I love this program. I love everything about it. I yeah. was desperate to get in when I was living in BC, but I haven't yeah. done it. So but it's, I, the, it's one of the most exciting programs ever established. How long has it been in, in operation? Oh, God, now is it 20? We just had our 20th anniversary, yeah. I think, 25th anniversary. I'd have to ask Carol now. So just um, to give some some context, it's uh, the, you bring in women who are developing their skills as a director, and then mm-hmm. she casts them, and there's act, and it's all in Banff, right there. Yeah. And they create these films. When I was there, it was, the, it was kind of the original style of the program. It's It's changed now into more modules and stuff like this. I think they've really done a beautiful job of developing the program to to as the business changes and as women need different things. Mm-hmm. But the original program for me, and that was probably the tipping point mm-hmm. of my directing career because what had happened was I went into being an assistant director, which is an amazing, and I, I firmly encourage this for all young directors. You went from being a PA to assistant director, or did you go right into I went into, well, it's the same, it's the sort of the same thing. PAs become, you know, if you're in the director's guild, okay. PAs become assistant directors. Oh, I see, directors. okay. So I, went, I skyrocketed up that ladder yeah. very quickly. And, um, and is that because you just worked your ass off, or is that because... Well, because I, I wasn't 20 years old. I was 30. Right. I had life experience. Right. I had people skills. Yeah. And really, the film business is about tenacity and people skills. Agreed, yeah. And I was really good at difficult talent. So they were like, get Annie. Yeah. You know, like, just get Annie. I feel like if you write a book, it's going to be called Get Annie. Yeah, get Annie. <laughs> uh, yes, please. Uh, Amy Poehler, my hero. Um, but I, yeah. I... So it was... It was... That helped me out. I had a lot of skills in that department. Gotcha. Plus... For a creative person, and I do have a wild, random brain, I have a really organized other side of my brain. Right. Yeah. So I was able to... It's it's one of the hardest jobs that oh I've ever God. done in my life. It's just to do with any grace and elan and creativity. Yeah. There's lots of people that can do the job that are just like mechanics. But if you are a creative person, you go into another echelon. It'd yeah. be like the Walter Gasparovics of the world and those those yeah. guys who who does all of, you know, Paul Figg's movies and, and now he works with Melissa 
I think he's doing Fahrenheit 451 right now, but he did all of Cronenberg's movies initially. Right. Stefan Walters, just, you know, he's a rock star of a human being. Um, and so you, you, but you are the, the sort of like, I always have this, you know, this saying that I say that always makes people laugh, but it's like the fish rots from the head. You know, I don't right. know. Right. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and, and so the AD team is like the spine of a them. film. Yeah. They're yeah. The, like, you know, hopefully they're holding up the brain trust, which is, you know, with all the cra- juicy cranial sacral fluid in it, you know, the producer and the writer and the director or whatever of that. And then everything else is, you know, lives off of that fluid, that information that travels up and down that spine and, you know, goes out to all the extremities right. and all the organs and keeps the things healthy and moving along and, you know, chunking along mm-hmm. there. It was also the most amazing film school. Yeah. And you're meeting people. You're meeting actors. I mean, I was working with Sidney Poitier and amazing. Christopher Walken and Tippi Hedren and like you know, like people that I would have never worked with as a director. Yeah. But such a great school. Oh, absolutely. So just going back to the voice thing, is that when you feel when you're working with as an AD that you found your voice? Like, it's weird to say I found my voice because you will always have one. But yeah. when you start using it. Um, well, I definitely had a distinct voice. Yeah. I was one of the first female ADs in the country, first ADs in the country. I had an all-female AD team most of the time, which was unheard of. Everybody was like, oh my God, we can't fuck all girls. I go, yeah, we all get our period at the same time. (laughs) So for one week a month, and then we wouldn't tell them which week it was, so they were just all in fear, so they would just do whatever we wanted them to. I think we're going to all be cycling this week. I'm just saying, you better be watching yourself. Where do you get that sense of like, oh no, this is the way it's going to be? Where, where, who taught you that? Or what, where did you get that gene? Uh, I have no idea. Um, I have no idea, but I've been this way since I was a child. Yeah. Yeah. So I have always believed, even though I struggle with deep insecurities, I have always believed that I have the right to sit at the table. Mm-hmm. I may not believe it always about myself sometimes, but I do, I have never not thought of myself as intelligent um, or having something to offer, mm-hmm. an opinion worth offering. My grandfather used to say he was a minister. He looked like Sean Connery. I'm not joking. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, you know, Annie, she's always got something to say about everything. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Damn right I do. So where do you put your insecurity when you've also got to stand up for yourself? um, Are you one of those fake it till you make it kind of things? I will say that I had a real come to Jesus moment sort of um, after I had become, you know, very successful first AD and realized that nobody was going to give me a job directing. Right. But what I learned in that job enables me to be a step ahead of a lot of other female directors, which was a confidence and a knowledge about production. When I became a director, producers would go, oh, yeah, we can't do that. And i go, oh, actually, we can. Let me tell you how. And then they were like, shit. Right. Right, because they knew they were dealing, which, you know, helped me in some cases and hindered me in other cases. Um, But it's given me a real confidence that I don't worry about that stuff. And now... In my next phase, as I like to cause it, call it, of my career, it it is becoming a tool that is ex- could be extraordinarily beneficial to me and to other people because I've become an amazing 
script doctor. Mm-hmm. I can I know what you can do for one point six million and one point two and six point five and through I know exactly what you can do in production. So now I apply that through my creative filter, story filter. So I've now meshed the two of them together. Right. So I can take a script that's in it's not really great or it's in trouble or it's too big or whatever, and I go without losing the important elements because I'm a director and I'm a writer. I can tell you, I can rewrite this script and bring it down to what you need it to be. Right. And as a matter of fact, it'll be better. And you never went to school for any of that. No. Just something that you learned. Just something that I learned. And also, too, like, you know, I am a big fan of the doing. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, you just got to keep doing it. And and you learn. Like, I still go and take classes. Like, I took an, I took my first improv class last year. With? Oh, my God. Tell me it's with Kate Ashby. No, I took it with Matt Foliot. Oh, he's I, fantastic. I took Game of the Scene. Awesome. But it was advanced Game of the Scene. And he was like, no, no, Annie, you can do it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? He's fantastic. I was so terrified. I've never been that terrified. I thought stand-up when I started doing stand-up was terrifying. Yeah, you do stand-up too. I haven't done it in a while. So I take that with a grain of salt. But I did for the last couple of years do yeah. it quite regularly. Um, well, but that was me. Like I was like, if I'm going to write comedy... You better learn. I want to... I want to get out there and die like the rest of them. Yeah. Like, I want to I want to honor the community, which I will say the com- comedy community saved my life. Yeah. They saved way? my life. I was in a funk. Uh, I suffer from depression, like I think all creative people right. do. Yeah. And um, uh, I was in a pretty bad funk. Things weren't... You know, I thought things were going to, you know, I'd done all the things that everybody had asked me to do, right. you know, all that kind of stuff, and it still wasn't happening. Yeah, I did everything right. Why yeah. is it not happening to me? Yeah, like, yeah. and I work harder than anybody, you yeah. know what I mean, all that kind of stuff. And we all hit these moments, and I was really sick of the preciousness of the dramatic world. Yeah. Because I've always had a sense of humor. Yeah. And you know, you catch more bees with funny. Uh, uh, so... That's great. <laughs> So, you know, even when I was an AD, you yeah. know what I mean? They were like, you know, don't ever try and tell the joke because she'll always have the last laugh. Right. And but that's what bartending. Drawn, you're drawn to um, heartfelt stories. Yes and no. But then now, like I, I, in your trajectory, you sort of see like these beautiful, as I said, heart, heart stories. And now it feels like it's flipped. Like when you, you worked with uh, Nikki Payne and yeah. Nikki Payne is one of the funniest people in the world. So. Yeah. So I, I, I've always had a really dark side, yeah. Um, which you know I enjoy deeply. Um, when when I started doing stand up, like Daniela, my one of my writing partners, mm-hmm. Daniela Saoni, who started West End Girls, um, said to me, "Man, you're just like you're like Lenny Bruce, man. You'll just go there. You right. don't care." And I'm so like, did you bring that into the improv? You're saying like comedy, the comedy community saved you. Did you bring that in? Well, I brought it in, but it was really great because I could get up there and be that person. Yeah. And you know, like you do that at a dinner party and people are like freaked out. Yeah. Right? But you do it on stage and people are like, yeah! Yeah. You yeah. know, or they go, oh, whoa. And you're like, all right, I got a response. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's, there's a place for it, right? There's a, there's a place for all of those thoughts and all of that, you know, political incorrectness and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm a firm believer that the stage is a, listen, if you don't want to listen to a sexist comic, just don't pay the money. Yeah, it's your choice. It's your choice, mm-hmm. right? It's like anything else. If yeah. you want to watch porn, it's there. If you don't want to watch it or whatever, it's not, you don't have to. Nobody's, they used to throw tomatoes. Yeah, right? Exactly. We just, we just don't yeah. have that kind of food available you know. anymore. 
tomatoes. tomatoes. Um, gluten free. Oh my god. Um, but I thought I thought it was really interesting that the comedy world saved my life because I started. It all started with Nikki Payne, who I was a huge fan of. I had seen her on stage, and then one day I was going to a, a show at the Fringe or something, and she was an usher, and I just walked up to her and said, "Oh my god." Like, you're the funniest woman in the world. Yeah. In the world. And she was like, thank you. And then we just started talking. And then we became friends. We started going out for tea and everything else. And at the same time, I had known Daniela from acting class. I'd been in Jacqueline McClintock's uh, Meisner classes with her. Yeah. And Jacqueline was a dear friend and, you know, taught me so much about my life. When I had made the decision to, right at the tail end of my assistant director, I'm tangenting all over the place, which is another thing I do all the time. I'm still with you. Um, when I was at the tail end of my AD career and I was realizing that I was going to have to, to become a director, I was going to have to walk away from a job that would pay me really well. Right. Like Because you said you couldn't become a director. You had, no. to, you had to step it away just, from it. They didn't work. see me as a creative person. Right. They but saw, that has to often happen. If you want to be an actor, you can't be an actor slash sometimes a writer. Well, it's different it's, now. It's different it's, now, but it's still like, what do you want to be known as? Right? Yeah. You wanted to be known as a director, so yeah. you had to own that. A director title. and a writer. And, I, and, and also to be seen as a creative person, which mm-hmm. I wasn't. Yeah. Because so, 80s are incredibly creative, but they're not. Oh my God, if you're good at it, it's the most creative job you'll right. have in film. Right. It's like, oh, how do I do, jump uh-huh. on flaming balls while my ass is on fire? Right. Um, I love that show. So... So I did, and I was working with a director, Roger Spottiswood, who we had done a couple of movies together. And Roger turned to me one day on set, and we had been working with a really amazing cast, like Liev Schreiber and Anthony LaPaglia right. and Jeff Goldblum and Stockard Channing and Heard of them. Sam Watterson. Yep. And, and they had all been like, Annie, what are you doing? You're a director. Like, you know, what are you doing? And I said, well, I know, but nobody wants to give me... And Roger sat me down, and he said, listen, I've never worked with anybody like you. You're creative. You can always come up with a solution that is better than the one that was in the script, that's stronger, that also fits the budget, that we can do in our schedule. Like, you know, you have that rare brain. He said, but I'm telling you, they don't want you to quit this job. Right. Nobody wants you to quit this job because they can send every shitty director up here and you will just make them look like geniuses. Right. So you have to walk away from this job. Right. And at the same time... How is that hearing that? Um, it's heartbreaking because I was never a person to save money or anything. Like I always worked the minimum amount that I had to to keep my career going and everything else and then I would take time off to travel and write and... Re- recharge, recharge yeah. creatively recharge. And um, I was like, ah, you know, why do I have to walk away from a $100,000 a year job? Yeah. You know what I mean? To make nothing, because you're basically going back to being yeah. a PA. Yeah. Right? And yet all the male guys were just getting jobs, and you know, yeah. but none of the females. But also so. uncertain, right? Like, oh, yeah. There was no certainty in, no. there was certainty in AD work and yeah. uncertainty in yeah. being a director. So I went, okay. And the last job I did was with this amazing director, Maggie Grenwald. And it was a really shitty, you know, Christmas Hallmark movie kind of thing. But it was a really extraordinary creative team. There was myself and her 
and I had seen her original black and white 16 millimeter feature, The Kill Off, at TIFF like years before. So I had seen her movies. She did, which is deemed the best Western of all time. Um, uh, oh my God, now I'm going to forget the name of it. Um, fact check. Oh my God. I know, rendering, rendering. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, oh anyway, let it go. It'll anyway, come back. It'll come back. Uh, this, based on a true story about a woman who had gone out into the West and cut off all her hair and scarred her face. And she was a she was a socialite from Boston who had been raped on her wedding night by her husband. She had run away to the Wild West and lived as a man and became this scion of the of her community. And they didn't and and she got she had a one of the workers that had, the Chinese workers that had come out to build the railroad had stayed and that was her man on the ranch Mm -hmm. and although secretly she was having an affair with him and nobody knew she was a man until she died and then all of the rich and wealthy powerful men of the county wanted to honor this man that they all thought was so incredible and so they undressed him to dress him for his funeral and discovered that it was a woman wow ballad of little joe nice nice it's an unbelievable movie so she did that. She and did that, she... and then she was directing some television, and we got to work together. And, and she said, I almost didn't hire you in the interview because you said you were a director. Oh. And in the middle of all of that, I went to Women in the Director's Chair. Right. I took 17 days off, and, and I went to Women in the Director's Chair. And I remember coming up behind, I was in an edit suite for one of our exercises, and it was like 17 days, and you just like, you know, like yeah. for a lot of women, they were like, oh, it's it was like overwhelming. But for me, it was camp. like, Oh, just like making a movie. Yeah. Um, it sounds so intensely inspiring. Yeah, and it was, and it really was, and it was all about directing, and it was all about acting and everything else. And so I, we had shot a number of these different exercises, and I came around the corner, and I heard the editor say, as they were walking by the hall, oh, that's your film, right? And I said, well, why would you think that was my film? And he said, oh, because you have a film language. Oh. And I was like... I have I have a film language and they're like, oh yeah, I can right. tell when it's your film. I can tell every time you shoot something. Right. And I thought that if I died that day, I would be okay. Because you need those folks to give you a leg up, right? We can be self-confident. We can cheerlead yeah. ourselves. And every once in a while, we have to have somebody else that goes, hey, you're doing a good job. Yeah. Like, that's so crucial to our yeah. our career. And, and I think, like, a film language is a really... That means you have a voice. Yeah. That means that... Well, it feels like you have the base for a voice, because I feel like your voice then developed into what you needed to say. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, you have a vocabulary. Yeah. 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 And I think that was really cool. Yeah. That was a real tipping point moment for yeah. me. And, and Women in the Director's Chair was, too. It's just a wonderful program that has was started with an excellent intention. Yeah. And I think that that intention has carried through. And... Um, until time caught up with it. You know what I mean? Until, against all odds, it carried through until time, until the industry caught up with it. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and hopefully, uh, you know, it will get its its due justice yeah. in regards to all of that. But, you know, Carol's vision for that and Carol's desire for that program came out of a, tr- a true intention. And yeah. so I'm still friends with all of those women. Well, I think we have that program to thank for a lot of the female directors in our community right now. Yeah. Even Definitely. the program existing. Yeah. Do you know? Just yeah. Having... My mentor in that program was Nancy Rossoff. 
And I still get together with her every single time when I'm in L.A. Yeah. She lives in L.A. and has ever was living in L.A. when we were doing the program. And we're still the best of friends, Yeah, you know, um, quite a long time later. And I'm still in touch with all of those girls on a regular basis. Shandy uh, Mitchell from Halifax, who's an amazing filmmaker. Um, she, that incredible, oh, my God, I'm going to forget that name. The one that was on the boat that Sean won Best Actor for. Um, Sean Doyle? Sean Doyle, who was my busboy at Poppers when I was a bartender. No. <laughs> oh, my God. What a little cesspool of talent that uh. place was. Okay, um, but now wait a second. So you, when you made the change of saying, yeah. I'm not going to be an AD, I'm going to be a director, what was your first steps into becoming a director? Did well, you have I to create got my, your own thing? I, yeah, always. Yeah. And I knew that. It's, I knew that from the business. The other thing that working in the business gives you is an understanding of how the business actually works. Not yeah. what everybody says how yeah. it works, but how it actually works. How nepotism really is the basis of everything and how it's just friends keeping other friends in business. Basically, yeah. most of the time, and especially in Canada. Yeah. So it's different in the states. It's a business in the states. It's not yet a business here. Right. I don't think it ever will be. Um, and I was just talking with um, Irish. I had an Irish editor on the project in LA, and it was very interesting to his have his opinion because the Irish film business is a lot like the Canadian. Film oh, business. is that interesting? Because of course, once again, they have an Irish film commission, like we have Telefilm, etc. Yep. You know, there's that government teat um, <laughs> that we've all been weaned on, right? Um, and so I got my first um, my first big sort of check that would enable me to do something from um, from Bravo when I was and from the Ontario Arts Council when I was working with Maggie. I had done one Bravo fact before that, but the this, the really important one, the tongue bully, came through when I was yeah. working with her. And I always say that was because I was working with Maggie. Maggie was, like, so talented. And now she's directing Nashville and The Good Wife. And she her movie, um, uh, uh, The Rising Sun, just played at Sundance right. last year. But for 10 years in between there, she didn't work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, she was teaching at NYU and stuff. And I was like, no, Maggie's got to come back. And then suddenly she was back with movies and everything else. So yeah. this second sort of, like, we need to get more female directors kind of kick-started her again right and that was really encouraging to me because she's a master filmmaker and I was very excited by by that turn of events for her and uh and stuff so you know women have different careers you know we have different I do I I guess it's like the path of like becoming a director and then the longevity of women as directors because I don't think it's an easy journey. I think it's uh, a bit of a battle constantly. Yeah. Do you find that as well when you're... It's always a battle. Like, this is the thing that... This is my... It's like war with better catering. <laughs> war with better catering is fantastic. <laughs> but, like, the fact that, um, you know, like, you might give a direction to a crew and they'll challenge you and you would never see that done with a male director. That kind of stuff blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, and I think like, you know, it was interesting when I was there, and, um, and then there's also the the whole thing and not to sound bitter and jaded, but you know, why not? Um, <laughs> uh, I've earned that right. Um, <laughs> it's hard to be optimistic in a time where the women that have fought for so long to kick those doors down are being stepped over by younger female directors who have no experience. Yeah. And there's right. there's sometimes a challenge with that. And because I am a firm believer that at the end of the day, listen, I don't care how many bad male directors I've worked with it when I was a first AD, and trust me, there were hundreds. 
Um, I also worked with extraordinary male directors who were so gracious to me and so um, encouraging to me and right. so, Annie, you can do this. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, I just sent Roger Spottiswood an email this week, um, and I haven't seen him in like 10 years, and I sent him an email because by chance I saw Bob the Street Cat, this film that's on Netflix. Please, okay. everybody watch it. I fucking cried all the way through it. It's like such a beautiful movie. Yeah. And I just sent him an email, like I said, Roger, like this movie, because Roger's a total curmudgeon, but I love him. And, you know, he was a brilliant editor. He created the buddy movie genre. He wrote like, like, oh my God, the Eddie Murphy, whatever vehicle, like he created the cop buddy movie right. genre. Like he was a brilliant, he's a brilliant man. Right. And he said, Thanks very much. Like, he sent me an email back and a nice little chat yeah. back and forth. You know, because, like, I was like, oh, my God. You know, he's, I don't know how old he is, 70? Like, you know, he's still right. making movies, like, independent features. Like, who? Like, it's extraordinary. Yeah. And it's hard for everybody. Yeah. So, I think that for women, I still believe that we need to know our craft. What does that mean to you? Like, what do you mean, need to know, like, you need to know it before you start? Yes. Because I do think that there's a problem with people getting hired to do jobs that they're not prepared for, and then yes. they're in over their head. And that, as I said, I did a panel at the uh, CS, C's, yeah, C- the CSAs. Canadian Screen Awards last year. Yeah, that, CSAs. Uh, CSAs. We did a, a panel for um, female directors Yeah. that I was the moderator on with the Director's Guild. And um, we had a real cross-section of women on it. I I was very hands-on about who was going to be on the panel. Mm -hmm. A real cross-section from age and experience and et cetera, et cetera. And um, it was very interesting, and I gave them very specific questions about um, that it's not just men that that are stopping women from directing. It's... It's women stopping women from directing too, mm. and how do you see that? Well, I wrote a movie with Daniela, you know, called the WBI, the Women's Bureau of Information. Yeah, and it's like, well, can women really get along? Sure, they can until there's a man in the room. And is that um, the tagline? That's the tagline. tagline. That's what that was with Nikki Payne, wasn't it? No, yeah, Nikki was. I brought her on as an original jammer, idea jammer on the gotcha. original idea, um, and uh, but it, but it was. You know, like that, that unconscious bias exists in both sexes. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I said, the, pro- the problem was that a lot of young directors felt that they were entitled to have the role of director because they were women, because there weren't any women in the role right. of directors. Yeah. And I said to them, yes, but it's a craft. That's like saying, I should be able to polish your teeth because there's not enough female dental hygienists. Right. No, you have to do the work. You have to do the work, yeah. right? And now there's no reason not to do the work. But on the other hand, m- there's been this real trajectory too from independent film where you're making a movie, a feature with your friends, mm-hmm. and everybody's a yes man, to being able to get the day mm-hmm. on a television series where you are jumping onto a speeding train that somebody else is driving. Yeah. And still do good work. And of course there's the problem of, well, we can't be good at that if we don't do the work. And guys are bad at that all the time and they get a break. And 
absolutely all of those arguments are true. And I said, yes, but also thinking that you're owed that is right. entitlement. Right. It's feminist entitlement. Oh, God, everybody's going to hate me now. Uh, but at the same time, you, you know, like, there's a craft in that. There's a craft in knowing how to block a scene, knowing how to set up, yeah. you know, knowing how to get enough coverage for the actors, handling the politics of a writer sitting behind you or a studio sitting behind you or, you know, something else. But you, that's the stuff you have to learn on your feet too, right? Like that's a lot of like the, there's, there's the politics of it. And as you said, like learning how to handle studio and writers, like that's stuff you, you have to learn on the ground, don't you think? Well, there are other avenues. There are other ways to learn. I learned all of that stuff when I was an AD. Right. Right? And it strengthened me because that stuff I don't even worry about. Right. You know what I mean? Because that's all stuff that I'm familiar with. So mm-hmm. I had this real confidence when I go onto a set. I'm like, oh, cause, because we also talked about what are the things that are stopping people from hiring female directors. And yeah. Listen, they're the same things that stop them from... I was in interviews where people would say to me, I don't hire female first ADs. They can't run a crew. And I'm like... Have you met my voice? Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. and, yeah. and 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 then they would hire me and they'd be like, oh my God, you're like amazing at this. And I'm right. like, yeah, isn't that incredible? So you had to blaze that trail. Yeah. And like, I, I think it's why we have to, we have to blaze it by example. Yeah. We have to be excellent. Well, this is it. We have to be better than anything. Like you can't really have room for failure as a woman. As of yet. Well, like, because if you, they'd be like, oh, look, another lady... AD and she's not doing what we need her to do as opposed to you know what this is my first time and I'm gonna make mistakes yeah you know like we yeah I, I love making mistakes yes like we're learning right yes but I think also too what is at stake is huge amounts of money and huge, sure. and this is once again it goes back to craft so make your mistakes in your own stuff right go out and make a film with your friends in an iPhone like go do all that stuff yeah. you know what I mean like make those mistakes and everything else but don't expect that how you make those films is going to be how you get to make a film with somebody else's money. Right. So at the same time, you have to learn the way the business works and the way, because listen, there's millions of dollars at stake. And the only way that we are going to have the victories is like, listen, I couldn't be more thrilled for Patty Jenkins right now and Wonder Woman because they'll call it a fluke because that's what they do. Just like Bridesmaids was a fluke, just like, you know, all that other stuff was a mm-hmm. fluke, etc. They try to shape it. But it's a huge glass ceiling breaker. For sure. For it's sure. massive. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a sea change because it's a genre that previously women have not had any kind of a foothold in before. Yeah. You know? So I think now you can't say, and Patty Jenkins really didn't have a huge background in that genre or that in that world or mm-hmm. even in television, mm-hmm. etc. You know, she'd done, I think, four or five features, but they'd all been low-budget stuff. I mean, and that's not the same. It wasn't like she was making features with her friends on the weekend. Right. They were real features, but with real union crews and stuff. And that's even simple. Like, the simple thing of, like, never having directed anything with a union crew. Yeah. And is that what you did? Did you start to, like, create your own thing, like, Pudge and um, ta- Tattoo? Is it Tattoo? Tongue bully. Tongue bully. What's tattoo? Uh, tongue bully. It sounds good. <laughs> so is that what you did? It started to like, make your own things until well, somebody else went, oh, we got to get her in on our team. Yeah, and once again, it was a woman that brought me in on it. And, and, and you know, like, once again, I think it's like the, that great story about, like, opportunity meets preparation, right? So I'm still struggling with television. 
Which I shouldn't be. Yeah. There's no. absolutely no reason why I shouldn't be directing episodic television and why right do you across think the board. you're not? It's like you're you have such a clear vision as a director. You can see your storylines. Um, like, I think it's because alive. in this country people are chosen. Right. You know, we we tend to anoint people in this country. Um I think that's changing. You know what I mean? A part of it can be do you have a really hot agent who has relationships with people? Right. You know, are you yeah. having dinner with the right people? It could be a whole host of different things. Um, I know what it's not based on is talent. Right. That's what I know. Yeah. So I've gotten over that hump. It is in the States. Even though they have lots of nepotism there and lots of other sales stuff, it's still a business based largely on talent. Right. Um, have you ever wanted to go to the States to pursue, you know, your yes. stories further? Yes. And why don't you? Well, that's what I'm about. That's, what, that's what I'm in the middle of doing. Yeah. yeah. And attempting that. I mean, I wish I had done it years ago. Um, Americans like me. Yeah. Yeah, you're ballsy. I'm ballsy, I'm feisty. Yeah. I have an opinion. Why didn't you do it 10 years ago? Um, Probably because, uh, I don't know why. I should have gone when my film got into Sundance. I should have just left. Yeah. You know what I mean? I should have left. But I didn't. Is that just like fear and... Probably part of it, yeah. Yeah. You know, and people's telling you not to do that or you know like there's a lot of there's a lot of I you know you can't swing a cat in the US without in LA without hitting a thousand Canadians right secret Canadians I yes. call them yeah. undercover spies <laughs> Donald Trump juniors um uh you know but at the same token I think we should encourage it more I think we should encourage it more like go there learn the business like work with people of excellence yeah. you know what I mean where excellence is not just something they hope for yeah it's demanded yeah yeah it is demanded right so it is it is everybody that I know that went there even if they came back yeah they're a hundred percent better for it and they are Don't is, is, it the, <laughs> is it the serial killer that's come to the door oh no Come on in, there's cheese. Come on in, there's cheese. Go on. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think it's... A, I think it's um, I've worked with lots of Americans, both in television and film, and um, sure, there's like lots of people that you don't care for. Yeah. But I will say this, you can see them coming a mile away. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can always like... You know, do the... Do the... What's it... The, the matrix the matrix and, and, and they blaze by you you know what I mean like I always say I like to know the size of a fan I'm walking into so I can afford the blade <laughs> it's interesting to me because you seem like such a focused a driven and ballsy woman yeah and to know that there's a level of like insecurity which is nothing new right like we no. all have it yeah we all and have you love. should have it it's vulnerability but where does it come from like does it come from and how do you deal with it so that you can advance? Um, I don't think it has anything to do with advancing. Um, Jack, when I went to Jacqueline's classes, that was when I made that switch, when mm-hmm. I sort of stopped dating and became a director again. I knew one of the things that I needed to do was reconnect with my vulnerability. Yeah. If I was going to work with actors. I love that. Yeah. I had to and re- I never hear people talk about that more, more than... Yeah. Than when I have these discussions with women, to be honest. Yeah. But I yeah. love that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, and let's and it, connect with that. And it was something that I really, I push whenever I'm doing workshops and everything else, I, to men especially. You know what I mean? I, I'm like, you have to, you have to understand 
that your voice is intrinsically connected to your vulnerability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And every great director, and I'm talking about the greats, that is what drives their voice. And we don't do enough work in our craft of uncovering our voices. Right. So I teach a workshop, actually, I do it once a year on uncovering your voice, and it blows people's minds. I they have, take that. They, they have no idea how they've, how they've gotten out of touch with it. They don't, yeah. or if they've ever even thought about it. But I, I learned it from um, Paul Schrader at a weekend in the IFC, had a writing weekend in New York, and I went down there and took the course. And he came out and he said, so, what's your shit? You know what your shit is? And I was like, oh, yeah, I know what my shit is. And, you know, I'm drawn to films. Uh, uh, every film I make is about two themes, identity and abandonment. Those are my, that's my shit. Right. Right. Because well, you're adopted. That's, yeah. like, that's your past. You yeah. have to, that's you have to yeah. call up on that. So every single film that I have ever made in my life is about those two themes. Yeah. They're not the same films in any stretch form. Like, like, no way are they the same films. Yeah. But it's you working out your shit. That's me working out my shit. And as long as you're doing that, and as long as the idea that you're working on is about your shit, then that's the shit tester. <laughs> that's yeah. it's the shit tester, right? right. Like, yeah. So right away, it's called idea testing. Right away, I can tell within 10 minutes if I have an idea for something, whether or not it's worth pursuing. Right. It is so freeing, you have no idea. And because everybody's like, I don't know if this idea is right. I don't know if this idea is right. And everything else, I'm like, is it about your shit? If it's not about your shit, you got to find a way to make it about your shit. That's your way into the story. Yep. And even when I get a script that somebody sends to me that I don't really care for, I go back to the shit filter. Right. And I go in through my shit. And I find a way into the story. I find a way to love the story. I find a way to, to connect to the story, connect to the characters. That's my way of finding it. That's my flashlight. Yeah. So how do you? Yes. Oh. Okay. So how do you? If you, if it's not about your shit, <laughs> I'm just talking about shit a lot. But <laughs> how do you get in? Shit is sweet. Like if it's got nothing to do with your what you think your shit is, how do you get into it? Well, everything is because it's my point of view, right? So everything that but I but like no maybe a movie that you're working on that isn't yours, like whether written or direct, like you've been hired. Yeah, as a director for hire. Yeah. yeah. I so try to how look do you at find it, your way in? I try to look at it through the filter of identity and abandonment. So I try to look at it through that filter when I'm reading it in the sense of like, what are these characters in this movie struggling with? Right. Does this guy have a real strong sense of identity? Right. Does this guy have a real yeah. no sense of identity? Like, what is he making choices based on that? And I trust my instrument. I trust it now. Mm -hmm. And I am telling you, I am so excited about the work I'm going to do in the next 10 years because of that. Yeah. Like, like blowback. Yeah. I feel like that, like, is on a whole other level for you. Yeah. Is it? Like, did something happen between, like, just watching the trailer? Because I yeah. know you had a really successful Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. But that trailer just wants me to watch more. And so what, ha what do you think you tapped into to get into that? Well, funnily enough, that, uh, I mean, this is a great Genesis story, I guess, you know. Um, Am I wrong? Do you think it also is another level for you? Like, do you notice that? Or is that just my perspective? Well, there's two things about blowback. It's deeply personal. Um, and it comes out of a place 
uh, and you can listen to the podcast. I'll, I'll send you the link for the podcast. Um, I killed a man when I was 17 years old who was trying to kill me. That is a true story. What? I don't know if he's really dead, but I'm pretty sure he's really dead. He wasn't living when they pulled him off me. Um, I was on a train in Spain. I was a rotary exchange student. I was tripping around on my own at the end of the year. And um, I was on a train in Spain and I met a couple of American guys and we were all headed to Barcelona. And I was 17 years old and you know, I was wearing painter pant overalls and a Speedo before spandex. Um, and they used to cut into your shoulders when you bend over. Um, you know, I had long blonde hair and freckles, you know, down to my butt. You know, I mean, it was an attractive young girl, whatever. Um, and I just spent a year in France. I just left my fiancé. I did get affianced once. Um, should have married him. He's filthy rich now. Um, and uh, and um, I was on a train with, you know, you know, a train pass. I was seeing the world, etc. And... Um, Anyway, uh, they were celebrating the end of the uh, one era in Spain, um, and it was um, it was like one of their big holidays. And uh, there were soldiers everywhere, and people everywhere, and bands on every train station, you know, deck, and lots of you know flags and everything else. And we were like, oh, well, what's going on? But we were sort of talking in our car and stuff. And so anyway, basically what happened was I walked in, I went to go find the bathroom and I walked into a train car full of soldiers, a box car full mm-hmm. of soldiers. And I, you know, did what everybody else does. Oh my God, that's a policeman. That's a military mm-hmm. man. That's a person in a uniform. That is a, there's a feeling of safety. Sure. You know what I mean? And I said, uh, you know, like, um, el baño, por favor. And they were like, and they said, oh, you know, and they pointed to the other door at the other end of the car. And I thought, okay, Great. I'm going to go through the car and I'm going to go to the baño and then. They parted, and I stepped in, and they came behind me, and I knew I could smell the alcohol. Oh. Oh, my God. And it was like, you know, really bad, bad situation, but I had a knife on me. I had a switchblade, which I still have. Um, a big blade, switchblade. And, um, you know, to cut a long story short, I used it. And then the Americans had thought I'd been gone too long, and they went and got the train captain, and he came in and shot a gun off in front in the car, and oh everything God. else. So it was it was a big. It could have been a big international incident, but it was all hushed up and put under the radar. And I was put back on the train, went back to France, and and you don't even know what happened. No, I had no idea. But he wasn't moving. Oh my God! So was he on top of you? Yes. When you did that, and I was covered in his blood. Oh my God! Yeah, gutted him like a pig. I'm a farm girl. Sure. Um, you know, so, uh. I had experienced that moment. Now, I was 17 years old. Yeah. I have no idea where the strength of that moment came from. But I remember, and I've told this story, um, actually the amazing Jacob Tierney directed me years ago on telling the story on television. Love Jacob Tierney. And, um, on and what? I, what was the show? It was called uh, Tell It Like It Is. Okay. It was a show that um, Scott McLaren produced. And, and uh, it was a great, great show, and I wish they would revive it again but it was just women telling stories on camera it was just like what a concept yeah. um but it was uh it was a moment where everything slowed down and logic just dropped in and it was like i rem- and i was a virgin and i remember thinking to myself i am not losing my virginity in this situation no and if i'm going to i'm going to die trying oh my god and 
I thought, you know, here's the deal. This is what blowback's about. We see women save the world. We see women save their children, save their communities. But I never get to see a woman save herself on camera. Decide to save herself. Right. And I think it goes to the heart of the role of women in society and the way we see ourselves and the roles that we accept and the roles that take us under. And I mean that in our daily lives. Yes, yeah. To see a woman put herself first and decide to save herself Mm -hmm. is a transformative moment for a woman who's watching that. And that could be in different capacities, too. It could be physically, Anything. it could be emotionally, it could be... Anything. Yeah. So I wanted to see that character. And I wanted to set that character in a world where being that woman and being that strong and being that person was demanded as well as scorned. Right. So I wanted to put that woman in a world where the stakes of being a woman who wasn't willing to play the game would be penalized. And yet was it was demanded of her to play the game. That's a consistent story. Yeah. Being penalized for not playing the game. Yeah. And so I didn't know anything about cops, really, except that I loved crime novelists and... You know, James Lee Burke, John Connolly, like, I love Pulp Fiction. I have a massive collection of vintage Pulp Fiction. Um, I love true crime. I love, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm obsessed with we'll the trade, why. Uh, we'll trade podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, I love yeah. it. The why, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm fascinated totally. by human behaviors and apparent behavior. Um, but you've been carrying around that story since you were 17. Yeah. And it's like, why now? Is it time for you to tell it? Um, well, I think it was because I don't know why. It just came to me. And, and you know what? It came, that wasn't where the story came from. That story is just a story I carry around with me. But that's but not a, where the story of the came point. from. No, it wasn't even that. It was actually the story, the genesis of the idea came out of me teaching a course at Rain Dance. About, and part of the course that I would teach would be about idea jamming, which is something that I do. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, okay, so what does she do? What does she do? What does she do? Let's, right. uh, let's pick a character, male, female. Somebody picks it in the room. Okay, what about this? What about that? Eh, too, that's too ordinary. Eh, come right. something else. What does she do? What does she, how about she's, a, she's a bomb diffuser. Hey, how about that? Oh, that's a good one. Like, she's a mother and she diffuses bombs. Yeah. You know, like, whatever it is. Like, just try to get outside the norm. Like, think, break, break out, break out, break out. You know, that's where you get these great genius ideas from. Yeah. And part of that's the way I approach things. And I love it because, like, I love the room. I love the energy of a room. I love the... You know, two heads are definitely actually scientifically smarter than one. Right. <laughs> um, if you jam with people, you get smarter. It's actually totally. a physical thing that happens to your brain. Yeah. The physiology of your brain changes and makes you smarter. Yeah. The more people are in the it room. opens your head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we, I would teach them how to come up with an idea, block a scene that could be shot as a movie with a beginning, a middle, and an end, one scene, within 15 minutes, mm-hmm. and block it and storyboard it. Love it. Shot list it. Mm-hmm. 
So pick a pick a season, pick a location, whatever, and then you create the character and you create the story out of it. Yeah. And that's how the end. You were like improvising before. Yeah. You met Matt Foley. Yeah. 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 And that's how the end what? And that's how the end of the movie actually transpired. Oh. And then I just went backwards. I because uh, and then I said, okay, so how did she get here? Right. Because then I wanted to know. Yeah. Right. Because there's a mystery. And it just felt like <gasps> how that's did she get there? yeah that your story inspired like her personality. Yeah. 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 And there's a lot of me in her. There's a lot of help it. No. And and there should be. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of me in her. There's, there's, there's a lot of the experiences I had as a first AD in her that in a man's world, Mm -hmm. you know, like it was something that I intrinsically knew that I knew that landscape that always having to have the dirtier joke, always having to have that, you know, being able to one up them, Mm -hmm. that whole sense of camaraderie, false family. It feels like you've been fighting like not fighting, but like as a female in our industry, it feels like you've been fighting for not only your own voice, but for our voices. Yeah. I think standing up for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. And yeah. And definitely people know, like I'm, I'm not a, Pushover, no. Which is probably might be part of the reason why I'm not yet doing the television work that I want to do. Right. Yeah. And yet I am the most incredible professional director when it comes to television work. I will just like, I will, I love the construct of it all. Yeah. I love the speed of it. I love stepping into somebody else's vision. Mm-hmm. I love all of those aspects of it. I love I, I, I love it. And I and, and, and as many people who know me know like it's they're like, you know, you're gonna get one job and then it's gonna be like you're gonna be working all the time. It's true. Yeah. It's just around the corner. Yeah, and it is, and I know that. Yeah. Um it takes a lot of work, a lot of groundwork, you gotta grind down a lot of Did people. Are you get tired of that? Yeah, always. <laughs> like, I'm exhausted by it. Yeah. I wish I was twenty and doing it. Yeah. It's exhausting. Like sometimes I just wanna be like I want I want it to be easier. Yeah. And then I'm all, and then I just need a day off. That's a sign for me that I need to. Yeah, take it's a hard day off. And, and it's relentless. Yeah. You know what I mean. And and also being single, you don't have somebody at home going, right. "Oh, honey, you're so fantastic. Don't worry about it." So there are times when it gets it gets lonely and and scary and all those sorts of things. And it's it's scary financially. Yeah, super scary. So, yeah. but um, Maggie always said to me, she said, you have, ten- you have tenacity in spades. You do. I've never met anybody with your tenacity. Also, what other choices do you have? Right? What do I like, want to do? Right. And wouldn't you rather struggle? Like, I'd much rather eat craft dinner for like, who cares? six like, months. And... Like, what do we really need? Yeah, not a lot. Like, I need adventure. I yeah. need creativity. Yes. I, I need, that's what I need. That's my crack. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So I love people. I love men. I love women. And I love everything that exists in between. Like, I like characters. Mm-hmm. That's why I talk to strangers. Like, I, everybody's got a story. Like, you never know as a director where your next big story is. Now, funnily enough, I feel like Blowback has landed in the zeitgeist at the very right time. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's just a matter of us getting the movie made that's more... You know, like that, as we all know, you you don't want to be too early or too late or whatever it is, you know, or somebody else have the same story as you. What's um, that right now? Uh, we have the money to shoot the short. Right. Well, we don't have enough money, but you never do. But uh, we've done very well. I mean, I can't complain. And not only that, but it was, but we got turned down by every single funding body for that story. When Every that? single when... funny. For the last three years, I've been trying to make that movie. I feel like if you applied a game, you'd be in a different world now. 
Like, I feel like things have no. shifted with women in our industry. No, I, ju- I applied just before we started the crowdfunding campaign. Really? Yeah. And, 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 and funnily enough, and once again, I was like, okay, so is the universe trying to tell me right. that I should just walk away from this? Right. That I should just call it a day and, I don't know, go to Sears and try to get a job at Christmas <laughs> oh or God. whatever? Like, I you would know. love to shop with you at Christmas and yeah. Sears, for you sure. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know, right? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? No, like, I get it. Um, and, and then, um, I had met this young producer, Beck Taggart, who I had gone with Daniela and we had lectured at Humber College. And, um, she just was like a firecracker. She was just this young, smart, she came right up to us. She was confident. She... She asked the right questions. I was very interested in her. And I'm always looking for those, that next generation of women that are, really have that thing. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and I said to her, I'd like to mentor you if you'd allow me to do that. I mean, that's kind of arrogant, but you know. And she was like, nope. So nothing happened for a year. I got busy on something else and then I came back to her and I reached out to her and we went and had coffee and I said, I think that you should become a producer. What do you want to do? And what I loved about her was she was not a hybrid. Mm-hmm. She was like, I want to be a producer. Right. I was like, Amen! Yeah, how often does that happen? Usually it's like, I'll be a producer, but I'm actually a writer. Yeah, and I'm like, yes, pick one thing. Like, pick, like, director writers at one thing. You know what I mean? Like, everybody's like, but you're a producer. And I go, I am not a producer. Right. I don't want to be a producer. I have had to produce some of my own stuff, but I have no desire to be a producer. But don't you feel like more and more, like, I feel like I have to do it all. I have well, to be able to do it all. And we shouldn't. Yeah. And you know what it's doing? It's creating bad work. It's creating work of not excellence. Right. Because you never have enough time to right. be excellent at one thing. Right? And um, uh, what's his name? Kier. Oh, my God. Udo Kier. I was at Udo Kier's house. I got to meet and spend the day with Udo Kier. Like, who does not want to do that? Um, I love old actors. <laughs> um, at his house in Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. And we ended up connecting through a friend who had worked with him. And we went out and spent the day with him, which ended up onto this hilarious adventure of going to his ranch out in the desert by the Joshua Tree, which is where we were headed. And, and drinking bottles of wine and talking about process and acting. And, you know, here's a guy, like, I mean, the guy's life story. You're in his house. There's just like, oh, right. There's like the Jean-Michel Basquiat jacket that some of you have. And there's Keith Haring's painting on the back of your leather jacket. And yeah. there you are. And, you know, like, it's just crazy. I feel like that happens to you all the time. Oh, and believe me, I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> You gotta be open for yeah. it. Though. You gotta yeah. like go, yeah, let's go do it. Yeah. Right? Like so Get Annie. Uh and he said, Oh, I just did this film in LA on the weekend for one of those new, you know, the new hybrids. And I was like, Oh, you mean the director, writer, slash producer? Oh, he said, Oh, I had cinematographer. And I said Costumes and craft. Yeah. And yeah. he said, How I said, How did that go? And he said, Well, you know, I gave him three days. And then I said to him, Honey, honey, we should talk. How's this all working out for you? This guy's exhausted. And he's yeah. like, well, it's great, isn't it? It's great. And he goes, no, let me just give you some. It's really easy to do a multitude of things badly. Yeah. I would highly advise you focus on one thing. It's hard enough. You know? Yeah. And he said, there's this new world where technology is so easy and everybody thinks it's all so easy. And I said, listen, just because you know how to work Final Cut Pro does not make you a goddamn editor. Right. You know what I mean? It makes you a person who knows how to work a software program. Yeah. An editor is a storyteller. 
is the guy or girl that pulls your head out of your own ass when you have no more objectivity yeah. and makes your film magic again. Yeah. Like they are like magicians, right? Like just like people who score movies, they're magicians and sound editors and you know, in 80s, like, everybody is a magician with a very specific skill set. I don't do the counting cards, man. That's not my shtick. Right. 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 Yeah. I'm, like, the person that pulls the rabbit out of the hat. Yeah. That's it. So, I just want to be good at the rabbit. Yeah. So, it's very, it's, you know, like, I grew up in a period of time where directors were just directors. Yeah. Like, you know, and that was hard enough to do with any kind of grace and under pressure and with actors and to be like, I want to be a hundred percent there for my actors. I don't want to be thinking about the budget right? about the budget right? when I'm directing. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I don't want to. No, no. You want to be able to focus. I, I, exactly. I mean, it's easy to get, I find it easy to get um, pulled in different directions because there are different things that I want to do. And I do feel like they all feed each other. Yes. So if my primary focus is acting, I feel like if I produce right, do podcasts, it feeds me as an actor. And I agree with you 100%. I do agree with you with that. But when people, when you introduce yourself to, because it is true, it's like, what do you do while you're waiting for other things to happen? Right. Yeah. You don't just sit at home and be depressed. You go out and do Create. something that is creative, yeah. right? Because no matter, I make jewelry, like I, yeah. whatever, like whatever it is. You have a clothing I make, line. I make chandeliers for my kids. I buy old chandeliers and then I remake them for my kids for their, for their bedrooms. Oh, I love like that. I make these custom chandeliers oh my that the kid goes nuts about, right? But it's like they get to pick one. the colors and they get to pick yeah. this and all this. Cause like, but then I do feel sometimes I'm spread thin. Yes. Because that just happens that I get excited about a project and then I'm focused on that. But yeah. Um, and, and I think I it's know. a balance. Like, yeah. You know, it's a balancing act. But but I think that doing those other things um, really feeds our soul. And if Agreed. you just yeah. focus on one thing, it doesn't feed the soul. No. And as you said, it's a balance. So sometimes the balance is I need to make a chandelier today. Or yeah. I need to spend time with my friends today. Yeah. What are you doing to feed your soul that day? Yeah. And especially also after you've had a lot of rejection. Yeah. You know, you've had really good meetings and then nothing moves forward. Yeah. And you don't know why. And you're thinking, does everybody hate me? Like, does everybody... I, I met with this really... I, I met this really talented girl at a dinner party like a year ago in L.A. And I just stayed in touch with her. And I, she was just young, but she just... Her, she was such... She was on fire, this mm -hmm. girl. And so I said to her, I was down... When I was down for the last two months, I said, hey, do you want to get together for coffee? And she's like, really? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And she's like, okay, great. So we just met in a bench and... Larchmont Village, and Love. we yeah. had a coffee, and she had just had a really rough period. Yeah. And she was so vulnerable, and she was questioning her talent. And I said to her, do not. Like, I just did the big, like, Oprah honor. Yeah. And she left feeling like she, now we're going to do a, we're going to try and do a web series together in yeah. the fall, late fall. And I said, I'll come direct it for nothing. If you don't get any money, let's just write it and I'll direct it and I'll come here to LA and we'll do it. And like, let's just do it. She's like, okay, really? I'm like, yeah, let's just do it. Um, I don't know how I'll pay the rent. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought like, you know, like it's also having those moments of connectivity with people and yeah. trying to, uh, I'm, I'm good at making other people feel good about themselves. And I think that's part of my journey as a creative person in this world is if you're good at something like that, you need to do that as often as possible yeah. and inspire other people and remind them of the gifts that they bring to the table and the magic that they have inside themselves. That's part of our human compassionate world that we're supposed to live in. 
And it's hard sometimes because you're jealous of people. For sure. You're jealous of their success and you've worked just as hard and you know you're talented and you don't understand why it's not happening for you. And I think all of these things are really, they're really hard and we don't talk enough about mental health issues. We don't, we don't talk about how isolating it is and lonely mm-hmm. and Facebook doesn't help because oh it's God, all curated. It's so yeah. It's all curated and you know, it's everybody's fabulous day that they're having and it's like, well, yeah, scratch the surface and there's pus. Yeah. That's what I always say. <laughs> like so I think there's a lot of things and, and I think the digital world has really amplified the loneliness factor. It's really actually disconnected us in a way that that is mm-hmm. that is tenfold. I'm very interested by that. I haven't found a movie about that yet or a series about that yet, but yeah. I'm, I'm very interested in that, in that, how that affects everything else. I love what Black Mirror's been doing. Oh my gosh, yeah. I love it. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's something about not exposing our vulnerability because cause it's, weakness. It's, it's, right? Renee Brown. Right. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Renee Brown. I love it. You know, vulnerability is power. Yeah. But... It cannot be shared with people who have not earned the right. See, I think that's the problem. Sometimes people are over-vulnerable. Yeah. And either like, like, you know, we all have friends that you're like, that's, you're, it's too much too soon. Yeah. And you have to, you have to expose yourself slowly. It's a slow yeah. strip tease, you know? Yeah. 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 And there have been times in my career where I've probably done a little bit of that. I would probably say that's like things that have maybe slowed down my path in a certain way. But... I don't regret that stuff. Um, I think that at the end of the day, and I've just been, you know, we just lost another person today. I just found out that David Whittacombe had passed. And David's just like this, oh man, he was so funny and darkly comic and he was so sweet and full of heart and so lovely. Mm. We were in the TIFF Talent Lab together and he... He just was, he was 55, like he's a young yeah. guy, like, yeah, you know, yeah. like what? And then I lost a friend to cancer last week. And, you know, you're, yeah. you're like at that point where you're like, there were so many people at my friend's funeral, like it was so full to overflowing and every, it was funny and joyful mm-hmm. and, and, you know, David Flaherty, Flaherty going, yeah. you know, and how many people did he touch at Humber College? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like mentor and, and shape and, and inspire and all those sorts of things. And. And yeah. you, I always just think about what that reminds me is like, whose day am I making better today? Mm-hmm. Because we become so self-focused. Yeah. It's a business of that or else there wouldn't be Scientology. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Like, um, no, that's a very true statement. I like, I like that as a, you know, goals, right? Like it's, there's one thing about going out there and doing stuff for yourself, but like, whose day are you making is a really good yeah. Cool. Whose who's day are you making better today? Yeah. You know what I mean? And once again, it takes, what it does is it also frees you from your own self insecurities and your own self-doubt. Right. Because you're focusing on somebody else, not yourself. I think that's like one of the keys to depression. Yeah, totally. It's like if you're going to help somebody else. Getting into a, a funk, go help somebody else. Yeah. Go serve food at a shelter. Yeah. Go do something. Just go do something that changes, that brings, tell somebody they look fabulous. Yeah. Get out of yourself. Like, we don't do that enough. Like, I'm always doing that. People are like, you're weird. I'm like, man, you look good I today. love doing that. I love seeing a stranger going, that's a beautiful dress. Yeah. Like, what? And then it. you just see the smile appear, yeah. and they walk away, and it's like, they're going to be thinking about that all day. I did that to somebody. I said, there's two women, and they were just ha- they were just full of joy. They were just yeah. beaming. They were, I'm like, you guys look like you're having a great day. And yeah. You look beautiful. And then my friend was like, weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> 
was like, I'll own that. I don't know. Bring on the weirdo. Give me a t-shirt. So I think, you know, like, and and I think, I think as women, we can put that energy out into the world as Mm -hmm. well. That that's always been our sort of superpower is nurturing and compassion. We sometimes don't give it to ourselves enough. We give to everybody else. So you have to really be careful about that balance too. And I don't mean narcissistic energy, but I mean forgiving yourself for being flawed. Yeah. Forgiving yourself for, you know, um, loving cheese. Forgiving (laughs) forgiving yourself for, you know, loving a cocktail. Whatever it is. Like forgiving yourself for making mistakes. Is that what your your like advice to somebody would be is forgive yourself yeah forgive yourself and 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 you know i was just talking to somebody about this the other day i took somebody out for a three-hour tour and they needed a helping hand and i said you know get up in the morning and i know this sounds really hokey but i get up in the morning and i compliment myself in the mirror what do you say like Damn, you're fine. Or something... <laughs> Foxy lady. Foxy lady. Or something stupid. You know yeah. what I mean? Because I like to make myself laugh, but... Or but just like... Or be silly. Yeah. I th- I think and even I'm, when you don't feel like it. Yeah, even when you don't especially, feel like it. Especially when you don't feel yeah. like it. It is a... It's a trick. It's just a trick. It's like... But if you say it, you're manifesting it, right? Yeah. And you're, you're, you're convincing yourself. Not you're not convincing anybody else. It's all about convincing yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So enjoy and also enjoy the silliness. Like that's what that's what was so much fun about the improv class. Oh, I love it. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I was it's like the best world. I, I said, Matt, why didn't I do this when I was twenty? Because he was like, I think there's a, quite a few characters that live yeah. inside of you, um, and um, and I was like, I just was in awe of what people were doing. Yeah, like, you're I was just to do like anything you want. I was like, wow. Just care and commit. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought they should be teaching this in public schools, in kindergarten, in high school. They should be teaching this stuff. Like they should be letting people play and be silly and, and to find their, and part of that is finding your own voice. Yeah. Right. Part of it is, is realizing that you have a voice and, and exercising that voice and making it be heard, even though you might fail and you do fail. Like, you fail over and over and over again, but it doesn't matter because, like, it's over in 30 seconds or two minutes or four minutes, and then somebody else is doing it again. And yeah. and I guess that's part of what I said about the comedy world really saving my life was I I loved that they, that they cared so deeply about the word, mm-hmm. and yet the word was completely throwaway. Mm-hmm. Like... It was about the end product. It was it was the first time that I had seen excellence as a goal, mm-hmm. a real tangible goal. And I don't think that people don't write stuff in Canada and don't do things and want to be excellent. I don't think that at all. I'm not slamming Canada, but I'm just saying that in the, within the comedy community, because it was so immediate, I was so impressed with people would come off and I have a pretty big laugh and people like. I love comedy, so when I go to shows, everybody's like, oh, Annie's here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yes. I'm laughing, and then everybody else is laughing. Because um, it's contagious, right? Yeah. It's like a viral sure. infection. So Best kind of rash you'll ever oh, get. Oh, be- yeah. best kind of rash you'll ever get. And and it's such a, you know, a mood stabilizer and a changer and everything else. Yeah. And I'm always shocked by, like, when I go to people and say, when was the last time I went to a comedy show? And they're like, I don't know, like, 
went forever. And I'm like, five bucks, man. You can go to a comedy bar any night of the week. Like, every show is excellent. You will laugh at something. Like, honest to God. So, um, but it was so interesting to see that, oh, my God, to see that they would come off stage and they would go, so what do you think? And I go, I thought it was amazing. Like, that joke you did about such and such, but you know that other joke? That didn't, and they go, that didn't land. Without going, oh my God, I'm a total failure. Oh no, you like, can't. It was like, they go, yeah, that didn't land. And I go, I know, but if you took that word out and then you read it and they're like, right on. Yeah. And then you'd see them two nights later and they would do it like that and they would land it and then they, and you would go, oh my God. Like, it was such, they had such a love of rhythm and cadence and of language mm-hmm. and I was like, oh my God, I'm with my people. Mm-hmm. Maybe um, you need to do uh, direct a uh, an improvised movie. I would like to try that. Yeah. I would like to try it with a real, like, high-end level of people. Sure, of course, yeah. Uh, um, uh, where we know what the int- intentions yeah. of the scene are and everything yeah, else. Yeah, I've done it before just, where you yeah. need to know what you... Where you're going. Yeah, where you're going, what you want in each yeah. scene, and then... Right. And then having a really skilled director to do what you just did, which yeah. was do the scene... Now let's take the air out. Let's get yeah. economical. Do it again. Yeah. And so then you get. Okay. So how did you? What did that give you as an actor? Um, uh, freedom, yeah. and uh, the joy of the commitment. So there wasn't me being detached, saying somebody else's words. It was just me feeling what I'm feeling. Right. Like when I improvise, it's the I find it so easy to go to tears. Oh yeah. As an God. improviser, but not always easy as an actor, because you're not you're saying somebody else's words, so you're once removed. Right. But when you're improvising, you're living it. Right. So it's, it's right there. It's like repeating in a Meisner class, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You have to own it. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, in film sets, you're not as connected to the material or yeah. in improv, you're living the life, so. Yeah. Yeah. I got to act this year. Yeah. In Kate Davis's and oh. uh, Kelly Fanson's. Oh, in their web series. In their web series yeah. with Nikki Payne. Amazing. We played two cops that come to the house because... Kate's Amazing. trying to out sex her daughter, like yes. she's trying to have louder sex than her daughter. Yes, and it was uh, so much fun to do that again. Yeah, with Nikki. Of course, now we want to do a spinoff series called Party Cops. Yeah, that we just shoot in Frosh Week. I love it, and we just dress up in cop uniforms and it. crash parties. And now That's... she's going to university, so I'm like, we can do it. We can shoot it in Frosh <laughs> Week at Mount Allison. That's Those East Coast drinkers joy. are notorious. That's the joy when you find that kind of like chemistry and then it's just like, this isn't real work. This is just... Oh my God. Yeah. That's it was awesome. just so brief, but it was so much fun and I was so terrified to do it. But I thought once again, this is also, I would say that this is probably my life mantra, which is, you know, do something every day that scares you. Yeah. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> I love it so much. I feel like this might have to be a two-parter episode because <laughs> I don't want to stop talking, but I also know that, like, we have to at some point. Like, people are looking in, and I think people are going home. And... <laughs> so I thank you so much. I so appreciate you coming in and spending time with me, and, and I, I'm totally jazzed. I'm so inspired by our discussion. Well, thank you. This was, thank like, you. so much. I started off in radio, you know, so... Uh, for me, I love radio, yeah, and I good. love podcasts, and I said, it's like the return of radio. People are sitting I know, around, so and, true. Um, you know, thing listening again, I love and, it's, it. and it's so, because, you know, I really feel like that's what sparks imagination, and that's what, you know, you can do, you can listen to a podcast 
sitting there alone in your house with a glass of wine or you can listen to it with a group of friends or you can listen to it in your car or on your headphones yeah. like it's it's once again that thing that you can do while the rest you're doing the rest of your life but yeah. at the same time it can be so powerful and so provocative and and god damn it you can swear and you can do whatever you want you can do whatever you want you don't have to right? wear pants so. it's fantastic <laughs> It's like, hey, I can go in my pajamas. Oh, that should but be thank you so, thank you so very much. And um, oh my gosh, yeah, we should find a project to work on. I would love that. Are you kidding me? I was so inspired by that. Well, all the clips I've been watching of yours and the blowback, and uh, yeah, I would love to. Maybe it's a comedy improv movie. Hey, I'm in. You heard it here first. You heard it here first, folks. I love it. Thank, thank you, you so and- much. And that's Annie Bradley, right? We could have talked forever. What happened was at about an hour, you can actually hear the chimes of the church in the background. An hour, an hour and a half, I thought, I gotta start wrapping this up. And that's when she launched into the story about killing a man. So you can't really wrap it up when somebody says that. You can't. Uh, And I didn't want to. Gosh, she's so full of life and energy and passion and such great stories. Gosh, we could have talked all afternoon. Uh, so go and follow her Twitter account. It's at a blonde bullet, which is what she is, so easy to remember. And while you're there, follow us too. Firecrackerdepartment.com, firecrackerdept on Instagram and Twitter, and of course our Facebook group. Because the last Sunday of every month, we're gonna do a um, Facebook live chat. So jump on board and chat with me um, on that day too. Live, 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 live. Uh, Thank you so much for all your support. It really makes a difference. If you thought of somebody while you were listening to this and thought, oh, that reminds me of my buddy Diane or my friend Jim or that great guy Manuel. I don't know. Pass it on. I would love it if you would pass it on and it certainly helps us build our audience. Thank you so much to the folks that are giving me feedback. I love it. I love having chats with you on Twitter about what you were inspired by or or what you're working on, it all fuels the inspiration fire. So thank you so much. Uh, Firecrackerdepartment.com, I think I said that, that's enough. Go on out there, get inspired, be inspiring, and I'll see you next week on the Firecracker Department. Thanks everyone.